Well, good morning. My name is Aaron King. I have the uh, just the honor and the privilege to be a pastor on staff here at Fellowship. Um, and it's just really encouraging to me to see uh, all the students up here on the front few rows um, representing. Um, just, uh, this is not scripted, but I love y'all guys. Uh, I love you very much. And uh, yeah, I'm proud of you. So there you go. Um, you, you as a church should be proud of uh, your students, um, just have seen how God's working in them, and I'm just excited to see where God is taking them. So uh, yeah, that's free. Um, so uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at, continuing to look at the story of David um, in our series anthology. And uh, this morning, perhaps, we're going to look at, I would say, the second most known um, instance in David's life, if you ask me, um, David, what, what's the biggest thing you remember from him? I would say, what? David and Goliath, right? Um, but the second thing that I would think of would be David and Bathsheba. And so we're going to talk today about David's uh, adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and we're going to look at his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. But um, before we get into that, um, I, I wanted to start with something uh, funny uh, and lighthearted, but also something that uh, just kind of indicates uh, how we tend to view um, sin in our lives and how for sure I grew up viewing sin in my life. Um, I grew up with an idea that the gospel was about not sinning. And if I didn't sin enough, or if I just did the, ba- the, the not bad sins, you know, like if, if I just lied, that was okay. But if, but if, I, if I slept around, or if, I, or if I did this, or if I murdered somebody, that was really bad. And um, I labored under the intention and under the idea that not sinning was what um, being a Christian was, and that was it. And um, so... Um, Think about that. Keep that in your, the back of your minds. But the other day, uh, we had um, some people over, and Chad and Jen graciously um, started uh, sharing uh, one of their favorite uh, YouTube uh, sensations that they had uh, shown us. Uh, and we're going to watch a clip. Um, this is a clip, um, and please, uh, disclaimer, do not get your theology from this man. Okay? Disclaimer. Nod your heads, please. Thank you. Okay, good. All right, so this is, a, this is a clip from a video of a man um, known as the third eagle of the apocalypse. Um, I can't explain it. I could explain it, but you'd be more confused. Uh, his name is William Tapley, and um, William Tapley um, decided one day that um, he was evidently this third eagle of the apocalypse, and he started making these videos uh, to uh, supposedly share um, his beliefs with others. All that to say is... Um, this video, this clip, and what he says, this was my idea of what the gospel was growing up. And this was, when I, if I were to read this text, if I were to read in Samuel about David's fall, I would think, okay, um, I've just got to not do this. I've got to not do this. That's, that's the way. That's, this is just a warning. There's no hope here. It's just don't sin. So um, this will give you a laugh. Yeah, that was the, uh, it's funny, but um, you have no idea how many churches where that is their theological belief is that the gospel is about not sinning. The gospel is about um, trying to work your way to God. And I want us to have that framework as we look at the text this morning. So we're going to see, um, first off, we're going to look at Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, once you turn to Psalm 51. 
We're going to look at Psalm 51, and this is um, after David's fall, after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, after he murdered one of his mighty men, Uriah, to cover it up and um, displeased the Lord. And after Nathan the prophet came to David and said, you are the man who has been doing these things and gently rebuked him and gently convicted him of his sin. This is David's prayer of repentance. So if you're able, won't you stand as we read the word of God together? This is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the sacred heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you that you are the true and better David. Father, I thank you that where David failed, you did not fail. Father, I thank you that we read this text of David's repentance. We look at David's failure and we see our own failure. We see our own sin and we don't have to despair, but we can rejoice because it is finished because the cross made an end of it. So, Father, I just pray this morning that your spirit would work. Father, for the, for the brokenness inside hearts in this room for, from sin that they feel that God would never forgive them for. Father, I pray that, you, that your spirit would speak in those deep places that have been walled off. Father, I pray that the words of Psalm 51 that to create a clean heart Father, I pray that you would create a clean heart in us this morning. Father, for those who have never met Jesus, for those who do not know this kind of love, Father, I pray that you would bring them to salvation this morning. Father, I pray that you would work in ways that we can't comprehend. Father, I pray that you would just be with me to speak your words to these people that I love. And Father, just thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that we can be here, that we can sing, that you're a God who goes after the one. Speak to us this morning. 
We ask in Christ's name, amen. So this morning we're going to talk, we're going to briefly look back a little bit um, at the story of David. Um, And if you're taking notes, uh, my first point is David's anointing is our anointing. So briefly before we get really into the bulk of the text, um, I'd like to look at this because um, just uh, Chad and I talk about this a lot in that there is a, a fundamental gap in how people approach the whole of Scripture. Um, where, does the, where does the Bible begin? What book? Genesis, Genesis okay. Um, and what's the first chapter in Genesis? What's it called? Genesis what? One, one. okay. Um, the Bible begins with Genesis 1. Um, the fall happens in Genesis 3. And it's very important that we don't start the Bible just at the fall in Genesis 3. Because what God did first is he created a world that was perfect and that was good and that was the epitome of what he wanted. Out of his excess of being, out of the happiness that he had in perfect community with himself, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he made the world perfect. And we're going to look at David's story. Because David's story mirrors the story of creation. When um, we were looking at the story of David and how he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. When David was anointed, God took nothing and made something. He took a shepherd boy who had, by the world's standards, nothing to really speak of. And he made him into the king of Israel. That's God's specialty. He takes nothing and he makes something out of it. In creation, God looked at the vast void and he spoke into being the world. He made something out of nothing. He made each and every person in his image. Even after the fall, the image of God is in each of you. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were anointed the creation of God and God rested. So in David's story... We see him being anointed as king of Israel. We see his victories. We see him vanquishing Goliath by the word of God, by the power of the Lord of hosts, not in his own strength. And we see David reaching a point where he's triumphant, his kingdom is at peace, and everything seems to be going well. Um, I read a tweet, I think it was from Scott Sauls this week, um, saying that, He's, he's seldom grown outside of times where he's experiencing suffering or pain. And I think that, that, as C.S. Lewis says, God shouts to us in our pains and our sufferings. And I think that if God speaks to us the most when we are needy and we are weak, then I think also the enemy comes against us the most when we think, I'm good. You know, everything's good. I've got it under control. I've got it. Um, because that's what happened to David. But we can't forget, before we move on to David's failure, we must know that David's anointing is our anointing. That just like David was anointed king over Israel, God has imprinted his image on your hearts. He's imprinted his image on you. He is wanting to restore this world back to the garden. He's wanting to bring it back to where it was. So second point, David's failure is our failure. So we're going to read briefly in 2 Samuel 11. Um, from the text that talks about what David did. It says this, if you want to follow along, feel free, Second Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, 
the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was waiting on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. And this woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David is not where he's supposed to be. His kingdom is secure. So he thinks, I'm just going to lay back and chill. And he sees this woman bathing and he goes and he takes her. Think about the amount of power that you would have to have as an individual to think you could just go and take someone. It seems that the power had gone to David's head a little bit. It goes on to say that David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah took his own death sentence to Joab on the battlefield. The letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And it goes on, and Uriah is killed And later it says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. See, um, one thing that was cool that I didn't know is David was uh, one of Uriah's mighty men. This is uh, someone who he owed his life. Um, This is someone who was one of his brothers in arms. And the thing is, is that the thing we should take away from this is that um, the best people can fall. The best people. Um, our culture, both Christian and secular, has been overrun really with stories of people that we thought, um, oh, that person couldn't do that. That person uh, couldn't have assaulted that person. That person couldn't have said this. That person couldn't have done this. And Time after time again, the world, both inside the church and outside the church, has been shocked when people in powerful positions have fallen. And the message for us in this is, one, that um, the seeds of the worst possible deeds are in all of our hearts. We cannot deny, we cannot sit and say, I could never do that. Because when you say you could never do that, you're in the most danger of doing it, probably. You need to be careful. We need to be watchful. But the good news is, is that as Tim Keller says, he says, you are more wicked than you ever dared believe, and yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. We must recognize our depravity, but we can't stay there. David followed Saul's footsteps. Saul was this king that came before and was prophesied to be um, a despot over Israel. David followed Saul's footsteps. The most interesting thing is we think of David and his triumph over Goliath. We think of his faith and his trust of the Lord. And the the beautiful thing and the interesting thing is that the same word in the original language that was used for David slaying Goliath is used for when he slays Uriah. And this is a picture that Sometimes the very things that, that we, are, we are confident in and we are talented in can, can lead us to destruction if they're not used in the Lord, if they're not 
used by his strength. So David's failure is our failure. We're just going to move through this because um, we're not going to be like William Tapley. We're not going to say, all right, this is the end of the sermon, the moral, don't do what David did. All right, let's sing. Um, That's not the end. Amen? That's not the end. David's repentance must be our repentance. See, David in Psalm 51, he bowed his his heart because God had already been good to him. Rather than let David um, just experience the full consequences of his sin and never repent, God sent Nathan to him. God sent a friend and a prophet to him to gently rebuke him. We all need Nathans in our lives. We all need people who are not afraid to say to us, you are the man, gently and lovingly. So David's repentance must be our repentance. It says in Scripture that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And if you switch those two phrases, you lose the gospel. Because if God's repentance, if our repentance leads to God's kindness, then that's no different than singing on that crummy Casio, uh, just don't sin, you can win. But that's not how God works. God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's kindness woos us, pursues us. And God's kindness didn't leave David where he was. It didn't leave David in the pit, but he brought David out of the pit. I'm getting excited. I'm moving forward. Um, All right, last point um, before we move to some takeaways. David's hope is our hope. The beauty of this story is that Israel had put all their eggs in one basket. David was looked at as this pinnacle of, of Jewish culture, this pinnacle of the Israelite kingdom. But even David fell. But the good news is that God was preparing, even in the seeds of David's failure, through Bathsheba, through the woman that he committed adultery with, would come one day, through the line of Jesse, would come one day the Savior, Jesus. And if that's not a picture of how God works, I mean, that's beautiful. Because God worked through that. David's hope is our hope. David's hope was not found in covering up his sin. Because he tried to do that. He tried to cover it up. He tried to have Uriah come back from the battlefield and lay with his wife so he could, so he could say, all right, they just had a kid. That's great. Um, but Uriah was, was too good. He didn't want to, to um, indulge when his men were out fighting in the battlefield. David tried to cover it up. His hope was not found in just saying, um, my past accomplishments, look at all that. I mean, this is Okay. It wasn't found in future accomplishments. It wasn't found in David saying, all right, I messed up, but I'm really going to work hard and do enough that God will be okay with me. David's hope was found in the fact that God's kindness led him to repentance, that God loves him. His hope was found in the unfailing covenant love of God because what God says he does not go back on because God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with David And he kept his covenant. And if David is a picture of all humanity, then if we not only share David's failure and David's need for repentance, then you better believe we have access to the same hope that David did. Because we've seen that hope. We have seen the power of the cross. We've seen Jesus. And the primary takeaway from this text shouldn't be do better so sin will not befall you. It is a warning We should be warned. We should realize that we must be killing sin or sin will kill us. But the ultimate hope is not in our ability to avoid sin. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus. It has to be. It can't, nothing else is going to cut it. Tim Keller, once again, um, this beautiful quote about what the Bible, the point of the Bible is, says this. 
It says, what you're showing is that the Bible and Christianity is about how you should live your life so God would bless you and take you to heaven. That's what I was mentioning. Like, people believe that. But that's not the point of the Bible, he says. Here's the point of the Bible. Now listen to this. Listen to this. That God continually and persistently works and gives his grace to people who don't deserve it, don't even seek it, and this is for me, and don't appreciate it once they get it. The point of the Bible is that the best people who have ever lived have not and will not and cannot overcome their sins and flaws and self-centeredness. But if they cling to the grace of God, they will triumph. The grace of God is our triumph. That's the point of the Bible. That's the point of this text. When we look at David's sin is that God is both the author and the finisher of our faith. So uh, I want to spend the bulk of our remaining time uh, here on some, some application and some takeaways. Um, so if you're taking notes, this would be the, the, best, thing, the best, best things to take notes on, I would say. Um, number one is um, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The Bible says sin is crouching at the door waiting to kill you. God is our ultimate hope and the only chance we have to defeat our sinful desires. Um, we must rest in him, be with Jesus regularly, and in doing so, the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than the power of sin. Um, I don't know about you, but so often um, I feel like, um, especially as a teenager, um, I would be struggling with sin, and I would say, you know, how do I, how do I, how do I beat this? How do I? I feel the guilt of my sin. How do I? How do I beat it? And too often, um, I was I was given tools, just trying to avoid sin, stay away from sin, do this, do this. It was all about sin and how to avoid sin. Um, So often I was not given the bread of life. I was not given the fact that the Holy Spirit of God inside me is the antidote to sin. It's not just me gritting my teeth and trying to avoid it, but it's the Holy Spirit of God filling me. It's spending time with Jesus. Because here's the thing, if you're struggling with, with sin this morning, if you're struggling with something, it's not enough just to to try to grit and bear it. You have to love something more. And the only way you can love something more is to know the depths that God loves you, the depths that he went to, and the, how he pursues you even in your sin. So be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is the warning aspect of the text that we see in David's life how he was not um, in the right place at the right time. But praise be, that's not the only application point. Um, second, Jesus has the first word and the last word in your life. Um, I could just preach a whole sermon on that, so I'm going to. Um, Jesus has the first word and the last word in your, in your life. Um, we talk about Jesus being the author and the finisher of your faith, but he not only has the first word and the last word in your life, the entire world, this city, Jonesboro, this nation, the United States, he has the first word he has the last word. Injustice does not have the last word. Human trafficking does not have the last word. One day, Jesus will have the last word over this world. And he will bring it back to that point in the garden when he said it was good. And this is uh, just a beautiful picture here. Because we look at David's life and we think, we look at the consequences of his sin. We look at 
the things that went on in his family, and we think, man, did sin have the last word in David's life? But if we fast forward to the book of Acts, Acts 13, 21 through 23, Paul and Barnabas are preaching, and they say this, talking about the lineage of Christ in Antioch. They say, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. This adulterer and murderer was mentioned as a man after God's own heart. His legacy was not his sin. His legacy was not his failures. His legacy was God's faithfulness in David's life. His legacy was how good God was to keep his promises to David. That even all the way in Acts, when they're speaking his name, they don't remember his failures, but they remember God's faithfulness to keep his covenant in his life. Mm. Think about this. God knit us together on our mother's wombs. He set this universe into motion. And when we, like sheep, went astray, he came after us. He ran after us. And he has the last word. The last word in your life through faith in Jesus is by the blood of Christ. And the cool thing is that not only does he cover our sin, not only does he lead us to repentance, not only does his beauty and majesty restore us, but the cool thing about God is that he takes what was once brokenness, what was once the thing that you would want to keep way down in a basket somewhere where no one can see it. Repent of it, but I never want to talk about that again. These are my failures. I don't want to see them. God takes them and he says, no, I'm going to use them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to make them something better because the world would say that that could never be used. That could never, if you've been abused, if you've been an abuser, if you've done things terrible, the world would say there can be no good in this. But that's not how God is. God says, I will take these things and I will use them for my glory. C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, The Great Divorce, um, I'm going to paraphrase this. So uh, if you're a C.S. Lewis like scholar and you know this quote, don't butcher me. Um, but he says that one day, um, one day the beauty of, of God will take even the suffering in our lives and will transform it. And it will begin to work backwards. It will begin to transform so that one day you'll look back on your life, you'll look back on your story, and you'll only see God's faithfulness. You'll only see the things that he used. That's our hope. So last takeaway is this. Our sinful failures in the hands of Jesus are redeemed into faith-filled weapons for gospel advancement. So I encourage you this morning. The takeaway is not only that God loves you and he leads you to repentance, but that the things that he has brought you to repentance over, he wants to use them. The struggles, the suffering, he wants to use it. It says in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. In Psalm 51, he's not just saying restore me. 
He's saying, restore me, and then I will use that restoration to teach others, to bring others to know you. I will, t- I will sing to you. I will proclaim it. Um, for those of you, a lot of you know, we just, we became parents, I guess, what, eight months ago, nine months ago? Um, why does, how does that happen so quick? Like, I feel like he was just, like, we just had him, and now he's, like, almost walking around and looks like a little boy. Anyway, I'm going to cry. Um, uh, but anyway, we just became parents uh, to Samuel, um, and um, we, were, um, we were sitting the other day just talking about how um, just blessed we were, really, um, with how he's been sleeping and everything, and then, and then uh, just like that, he started to not sleep. <laughs> and uh, my wife, Erin, came to me, and, and she was um, just struggling, uh, just struggling with, uh, with dealing with everything. And we were struggling together and feeling isolated and overwhelmed. Um, and one thing I told her was that think about in your isolation and you're feeling overwhelmed, um, who else might be feeling that way? Who else might feel isolated and overwhelmed? And bring go to that person and encourage them. And you find that God encourages you in that because you know you're not alone. You know that other people have failed, other people have suffered. And you know that encouraging others, God encourages your soul. So if you failed, if you struggled, know that God wants to redeem that. Know that there are people out there who are sitting in this room right now who feel like they're the only one who feel like they are too dirty, they are too far off, and that if you would come up to them and say a word of encouragement, say, I've been there and God is bigger. That is the greatest word you could speak over someone's life. And I feel just of the Lord that, that, that God wants to do that, that there are people in this room that God wants to speak a word of encouragement over, that they are not alone, that they are not, that they are worth it, that even, even when we Felt no worth, God loved us, as the song said. When we do this, the greatest thing is that we are stealing away the power the enemy has over us. When God speaks lies into your heart, when God speaks lies into other people's heart, and you go and you encourage them, you are stealing away the power that the enemy has over them. You're taking it, and you're saying, no, God will redeem even this. He will redeem even this. And you might say at this point, um, I can't imagine how God will use my mistakes and my failures. All I see is my sin and my consequences of the sin. But I encourage you, think about this. This will be toward the conclusion. Think about this. David couldn't see the whole story either. The David we look at, we see from a thousand miles up. We see the whole story laid out. But imagine David as a person in time, under the weight of his sin, under the pressure of his throne, the pressure to be God's just and true king, the pressure that everything in Israel was up to him. It had to be him. He had to do it. Saul was not good. God delivered him. He did all this. It's all on David. Imagine him feeling that pressure. And imagine one day David realizing and meeting Jesus who is the true and better David, the David that did not fail, the David that is the true vine that would not run dry. 
Jesus comes through the line of David to show God's faithfulness to Israel, but also to show his faithfulness to us, that God will use anyone, that God can use anyone. So imagine David this morning. Imagine him meeting Jesus. Imagine him seeing the one who would take the pressure of his throne off of him, would realize that it, was, it wasn't up to me, that God did it for me. So this morning, um, I just, um, just want you to bow your heads. We're just going to have a time of response. But I just want you to, to imagine, I want you to picture in your mind, I want you to, to lay in front of you the pressure, the weight of your failures, the weight that weighs you down, the burdens, the burdens for others. I want you to lay it in front of you. And I want you to realize that Jesus takes that weight like he took David's weight. And he says, I will carry it. He says, I will carry it. I will bear it. I will, I will seal it under my blood and I will choose not to remember it. And know that that promise is just as true today as it has ever been. And it ever will be. And listen to these words that David would one day hear, that he would pray and that he would know would be true that he waited for. And know that these words are for you, that Jesus is here for you. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and fears release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. You were born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Know that Jesus has come for you. And that the prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 is not a prayer prayed by someone who, who was at their best, but someone who was at their worst. Someone who felt that the whole world was crashing down to them and God was done with them. So if you feel that God is done with you this morning, it is a lie from the enemy and it is not true. We're going to have a time of response. And I just encourage you, if you need to pray for repentance, if you need to pray, do so. If you need to pray to accept the forgiveness that God has already given you, if you feel that you cannot accept it, know that he loves you and he cares for you. And lastly, I encourage you, the Spirit lays on your heart to go to someone in this room and to pray over them, to pray for them, to speak with them, to let them know that they are not alone, I encourage you to do it. Father God, would you move as the living God? Would you show off this morning? Would you be in this place in a special way? Father, would you break through those darkened parts in our hearts. Father, break through. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Christian's going to lead us in a song. And um, I just encourage you if, you, if you feel the Spirit leading, um, you can come and pray out at the altar. Um, Chad, the elders, any of us, would, lo- would if you need prayer, would love to pray with you. And Chad's got a few words. Thank you, my friend. Everybody, uh, just remain sitting for a moment because I think we're going to stand together corporately and I think it's going to have some significance for us. Psalm 130, I'm going to lead us in a, a corporate repentance. Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And this is the part. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, or O people of God, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel, or his people, from all his iniquities. So, I think in these moments guilt and shame can run rampant and it's important for us to realize that the judgments of God's law has rendered everyone in this room guilty. We are all collectively beginning with me liars and murderers and adulterers and greedy in our hearts. But the reason that we can stand and the reason that we can praise him with confidence and the reason that we can approach him is because there is forgiveness that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to save sinners right so we don't have to pretend like this message doesn't apply to us it applies to all of us across the board so we can approach him because we have a savior that allows us to come and that allows us to draw near and he actually asks us to give our burdens to him to to wait for him to allow us to wait for him like watchmen for the morning. There's an eagerness for him to extend forgiveness to those of us that have sinned, and that is all of us. I want to pray for us collectively, and then uh, Christian's going to lead us in a song of collective faith and repentance. Father, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? None of us. None of us are righteous. All of us are guilty in and of our own selves. But because you love us, you did not leave us. You sent a Savior in the form of Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost so that we could have confidence, so that we can stand. I pray that your mercy would wash over us as your people collectively, as we both simultaneously acknowledge our guilt, but also in faith approach you knowing that you have atoned for it all. I pray that your spirit would be present here to guide our singing, to apply it specifically to our hearts, and that we could minister to one another. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now with full faith and confidence, 
you can stand.